Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project based at Queen Mary, University of London and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit our website, autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at at Autism Cinema. If you're a fan of this podcast, please do spread the word. Leave us a review or share our episodes on social media. We always love to hear from you. Just a quick note for this episode. Because we had so much to say about Doctor Who and the Tenth Planet, we've decided to split this episode into two parts. This is part one, and part two will follow next week. Many thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Welcome back, everybody, to the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Um, in fact, today, actually, we are, I suppose we can call ourselves the Autism Through Television podcast in a way, because uh, we are sidestepping somewhat away from our normal uh, programming of films, uh, feature films, into a, a TV series. But we had such enthusiasm coming from our regular hosts for uh, an episode about Doctor Who um, that we've decided to do one. So here we are. We're going to do a Doctor Who episode. Uh, we'll get into the, the detail of all of that for, uh, in a minute. Uh, but first of all, I'd like to welcome our two uh, regular hosts. So we've got uh, Ethan Lyon. Welcome, Ethan. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much for suggesting Doctor Who as an episode, because we're all very excited. And uh, we've also got Lillian Crawford. Hello, Lillian. Hello. Thanks for joining us again. And we are super excited to welcome a special guest to the podcast. We are welcoming the wonderful Harry Draper to the podcast. Hello, Harry. How are you? Hello. I'm very happy to be here. Great. We are extremely excited for you to be here. Um, Harry uh, came recommended by Ethan. Um, and, uh, and, and as soon as I started looking into you, I thought, oh, this person is perfect. <laughs> uh, so I'm really glad. So I've, Harry has, has the, um, very kindly sent through just a little um, uh, biography uh, via email to me. So I'll just uh, quickly read some of that out. So um, Harry says, since having a very short story published in a book of mini sagas in 2009 and a slightly longer short story in a young writer's magazine in 2010, Harry Draper has written a fair bit more stuff. Uh, it says he was an intern on Edge Hill University Press's first book, Headland, 10 Years at the Edge Hill Short Story Prize, which was released in 2016, uh, that comprised of short stories from loads of really cool writers. I won't read them all out. But one of, the, one of the most significant ones being Robert Shearman, who has written for Doctor Who, I know. And Neil Gaiman, actually. Okay, interesting. Great. Um, but this is, this is the key bit of the bio, I think. Uh, he made his Doctor Who debut at Big Finish Productions with The Last Day at Work, 2018, as part of the Paul Sprague Memorial Short Trips Opportunity. The Last Day at Work was read by Nicholas Briggs, executive producer at Big Finish and voice of the Daleks and the Cybermen in the television series and is available to download for free along with the pitch and script from the Big Finish website. And we will put a link in the uh, description of this episode so that people can go and, and read that because it's amazingly brilliant. Um, and then finally, since late 2022, he's been working on a PhD thesis in film studies at the University of Southampton, 
It's about Daleks, which came as a complete surprise to his family and friends. <laughs> <laughs> so, Harry, welcome. Um, thanks for coming here. Uh, is there anything else you, you, you want to say about yourself uh, before, we get, before we get cracking? Um, it's always um, an interesting thing because, of course, a lot of the stuff that you end up working on both, um, you know, for, for Doctor Who in, in some official capacity or original, because it ends up in a production pipeline. It, you're always, you, you can't ever quite accurately judge what things you can reveal or which things are going to get like, um, you know, um, have got a bit of a, what do they call it? A, a D notice on them or something like that. Uh, so, but um, no, uh, if uh, just uh, I really enjoying my time at Southampton University that's where I got in contact with uh, host Ethan, uh, who's been incredibly supportive and encouraging and uh, really doing a, a fantastic thesis. And, um, so, and so when he said, oh, how about this podcast and doing this episode, I was like, oh, that's brilliant. And uh, I've, I've since managed to listen to one episode, which was about the secret garden, which, which I absolutely loved. I thought it was brilliant. And uh, yeah, that was a, I, th- I sort of gravitated towards that because I remember reading that as a kid. So I thought, oh, that, that, sounds, that sounds good. So it's, it's a lovely podcast. Uh, it's so nice to be here with you all. Thanks, Harry. That's brilliant. And I, and I'm, I genuinely would love to read much more about your, your thesis about uh, Daleks. I mean, that, that has inspired some real inspiration. When I was doing my PhD at the University of Manchester, um, my supervisor, as I've already mentioned to you, Harry, my supervisor... Uh, Dr. David Butler, um, shout out to Dr. Butler. He's an enormous Doctor Who fan and, and knows it inside out. Um, whenever I went to see him for supervisor meetings, I, I was always playing with his TARDISes and his Cybermen and his sonic screwdrivers and so on that he has in his room. Um, so, yeah, I think that um, I think he would be a, a really interested in it. And, I, and well, well, lots of people would, as, as would I. So really good luck with the, with the rest of the PhD, and I hope it all goes well. So let's move to what we're going to talk about, because I know that we are going to be talking a lot today because we've all got loads and loads to say about who. We're all big Who fans. I'm going to pass over to Ethan, because Ethan was the person who pitched um, Doctor Who as our uh, theme for today, as our focus, and also is the person who picked out the particular uh, serial that we have, uh, we've all watched. I mean, I think we've all watched various episodes, but this is the main one that we're going to look at and focus on. So Ethan, we want to uh, to... Give us a bit more about all of that and why you chose this particular angle. Um, the idea, I think, came to me partly as a joke uh, while we were all having dinner at the Autism Through Cinema conference. Um, it suddenly just occurred to me in a flash that it would be a wonderful thing to do Doctor Who. Doctor Who was certainly one of my special interests when I was younger, um, when I was about nine or ten in particular, and it was a fascination that kept me kept me watching knew who until about the end of the Matt Smith era. Uh, But I was always gravitated far more towards the classics of McCoy, Tom Baker in particular. And something must have struck a chord in the writing I was doing about uh, science fiction cinema and its sort of relation to the Gothic and relation to autism. And it just seemed like a natural choice to talk about who. And to be honest, the first serial I thought of would be appropriate to be uh, for this podcast, The Tenth Planet. Um, the Tenth Planet is the final William Hartnell story, but also importantly, it's the first Cyberman story. And from that, we have two very important elements in play. 
First, we have the establishment of a crucial part of the Doctor Who mythos, the process of regeneration, and the idea that one actor can play a mul- uh, an actor can play a role and then simply step aside and allow a new one to come in place due to the alien powers of our main character. And the second is the Cybermen themselves, who throughout their time, both in the classic serials and indeed in New Who, uh, have been variously depicted as tragic figures, uh, uh, examples of technology gone completely amok, and relentless shock trooper, squaddy type uh, villains who are hell-bent on destroying both the Earth and the Doctor. Um, But what I wanted to talk about, especially in relation to the Tenth Planet, when they are so raw as creations since their first appearance, is how profoundly, how much one can read autism into both their appearance, their conception of existence, and indeed their vocality, which uh, is very, very, which is unique here in relation to their other later appearances. And there's a number of different elements I could rattle on about the history, the, um, the the animations. But the thing is, is that these all open up two very important elements. One is Doctor Who as autistic fandom. And the idea that fandom and autism is something which comes together quite profoundly. There is the famous A.E. Van Vogt line, a line taken from A.E. Van Vogt, uh, fan fiction, if you will, uh, fans are slams, and the idea of conscious identification with the outside monster or the outside alien. And then there is the process of sharing facts with others, re-entrenching points of view, collecting, creating extra additions to one's favourite show. These are all very important subjects that we've not discussed here on the podcast before, to my remembrance, but I think have important elements of the autistic experience and therefore they deserve some discussion. Um, Yes, so we have watched The Tenth Planet. I think also we've also watched some various other Cybermen episodes. I know that I have. I've watched some of the modern ones. Um, And I've watched all of the classic serials uh, from from Tenth Planet to uh, Silver Nemesis in 88. And it's also worth saying that Harry has some Cybermen behind him. I mean, I know you guys are listening to this as a podcast, but there is a whole range of Cybermen sitting in a in a in a battalion. So the Cyber Fleet, the Cyber Fleet, yeah, yeah, and that kind of feels like it feels it dovetails nicely to what you've been saying because I think it's quite you know it's you look you take a look at that display of like various Cybermen figures from specific stories, uh, you know, even down to the minutiae of which ones are the leaders and which have the Cybermats, and you go, ah, okay, you're, you're that kind of Doctor Who fan. <laughs> so it, it, uh, you can sort of tell in, that, in this display, which is only for the podcast, even though, like David correctly said, it's on audio. This is a one-timer for autism through cinema. So after this, it all goes back into storage. <laughs> Thank you very much. Great. Well, let's open things out then. And, and I think maybe if we start by uh, reflections on the 10th planet itself, and then that hopefully will spin us out onto the other thoughts. Um, so let's, yeah, we'll just open this open this up and see what, what, what people made of, of this particular serial. So for me, the 10th planet has, I have a strange relationship to the 10th planet, which is that I heard it before I ever saw it, um, because they re- released a long time ago a CD version of the... Um, 
the serial. And so I knew it in terms of almost as a radio play rather than a visual as a teleplay. Watching it as a teleplay was a strange experience as a result. Um, I must say, however, I very much enjoyed it. I thought that I thought that uh, especially episodes one and two are some of the best early Who. They're tautly written, they're well acted, they're snappy. Um, Hartnell is on brilliant form, even though he was suffering very badly at the end of his life. And I think it was arteriosclerosis. Absolutely mangled that, but he was very, he was very unwell by the end of his life. And the Cybermen are superbly, um, superbly realised. Does go slightly downhill by episode three and four, but it's still as 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 an announcement of the um, an announcement of who and an announcement of the new era of Who, it's fantastic, and it holds up really well. Tev Planet was really uh, appealing because um, uh, it is, as you say, one of the quite seminal sort of Who texts, uh, you know, in the in the sort of broader strokes like Regeneration being introduced and the Cybermen debuting. And also in, in, in terms of it's probably a classic Doctor Who story that sort of modern viewers can come back to and find it fits with the new series you know you've got like planets appearing above in the same solar system as earth and sort of news readers relaying the events which feels very you know that's that's all criteria that russell t davis brings into his doctor who when it comes back in 2005 you feel like it's a very formative text on his imagination and um i think i think your uh, review of it even does is is very much the kind of the common uh, accurate stance that episodes one and two are very uh, strong, very robust. Uh, by this point, the producer is Innes Lloyd and he's uh, sort of rooted Doctor Who back into the contemporary and uh, Jerry Davis and Dr. Kit Peddler together have kind of put together this kind of view of the space race, which just makes it feel a bit more real than sort of earlier William Hartnell stories where he and, and as much as I love them they, he is hanging out with butterflies on an alien world and it, everyone seems like they've like dropped you know they're taking LSD uh, and it and it kind of plays to the strength that it's kind of a new version of Doctor Who which is and it's in some stories that I love like The War Machines and The Tenth Planet it's kind of a show that you feel like William Hartnell's Doctor is a bit of a stranger in and he's and it's kind of like it's almost like him sort of collapsing in episode three, which of course is sadly a, a consequence of like Hartnell needing that episode off. And then by the time he's in episode four, we've not got that anymore in the BBC archives because it was wiped. And also, you still don't feel Ben's much more of the the hero in it than Doctor Who is. It's quite. It's I, I quite like those sort of. It, it very rarely happens. You get it with Tom Baker's last season. You feel like the, the show is outgrowing its leading man and they're kind of wandering around going, wondering, am I, you know, it's almost like there's something quite wistful and like uh, like mournful in the sense that this show is already moving on without the, the person in the lead role. Um, and But yes, yeah, it's, it's, I, I, it's, it's a good one. I, it's very good. Um, something I want to talk about in relation uh, for Lillian is that often in Doctor Who, the, and especially I think in this serial, women are often sidelined. Uh, there's this argument to be made that women and the female companions are sidelined in relation to the male uh, companions, especially 
Um, I mean, Polly's job here is to make some coffee uh, and try and uh, persuade Carstairs to not blow up the not blow up Mondas. But you, but I know that you were very interested in talking about uh, Doctor Who in relation to women, and so I was wondering. Uh, sort of how sort of your responses to the episode, to the episodes, and especially in relation to the female companions who often who have a very complex relationship in relation to agency and arguably autism. Okay, that's a big question. <laughs> well, it wouldn't be me without a massive. It's a question. Hu- huge question. I, I like the idea that um, you know, <laughs> perhaps up until sort of uh, a certain point in Doctor Who that one can sort of reduce the women in Doctor Who to a, a straightforward question. That's maybe not so much the case. I mean, actually, I think that part part, part of the um, part of the appeal of it for, for me um, throughout my life has been that Doctor Who is a programme that, that does um, centre its female characters right from the off with uh, Susan and Barbara. So, um, yeah, I think watching the Ted Planet which I must confess I hadn't seen for a while until sort of the arrival of Doctor Who on streaming several years ago when Breakbox had all of them. It was very difficult to watch a lot of Doctor Who. Um, And I used to have a grand collection of VHSs that my uncle had given me um, that I used to work through. So I only had sort of a smattering of episodes. I didn't have the, the complete saga I suppose um but the 10th planet certainly wasn't one of them but it was one that I was of course aware of um so I'd read about it a lot and I think that what's so striking is what what Ethan says that um actually if you look at what Susan and Barbara are doing at the start of Hartnell they're very actively involved and very much sort of the heroes of the stories and it was is quite striking seeing Polly here being utterly useless um and 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 sort of decrying the fact that she's useless, and then and then being asked, well, what do you think you can do? <laughs> I can make the coffee, <laughs> which no one, no one during a Doctor Who episode, I'm convinced. I mean, I might be wrong in this, and you might have to correct me, but I don't think anyone has ever been reduced that they have no idea what to do with the female character to the point where she is reduced to literally oh. being the coffee girl. Oh, I can um, one, I can one up you on this. Polly does okay. this again in the Moon Base. Okay. Okay. Yes. Okay. Where it's a little bit, to be fair, she does more than the moon base. But partly, I think, is given. I think of the the female companions. I think you are right. By the end of Hartnell, they're not very active, and it is, and it is something of a flaw. I think of late. I think it only becomes more active when we get to someone like Zoe. But that's uh, that's that's something I'm interested in as well as how a number of the female companions, and I should have been clear on this, can be coded as autistic and for. Their, their almost precocious knowledge and their uh well you think polly is not polly no but zoe no. definitely zoe no, zoe, zoe, zoe for sure and I, I i think susan is i mean it's, it's, i i think that's why i love susan so very dearly that she's the the sort of nerdy outsider it's, it's her <laughs> dancing is... to john john smith and the common men in the very first episode and an earthly child that feels very because i I'm, I'm sure it might be the same for for you all i certainly do that i get like you know my ipod and sort of just kind of you know dance 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 away into the night so you know already from that the off it's quite that you think oh that is that could be considered autistic coded in a lovely way well course- it's it's this idea of sort of being an alien from another planet i suppose isn't it and 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 um i mean i've mentioned before and i think i did an et episode that we did recently about camilla pang's book on um 
uh, her sort of guide for autistic people that she felt that she was an alien on the planet and, and needed a guide to how humans work. And Susan is very much that character as sort of the granddaughter of, of the doctor. But it, I, I think in, in the 10th planet, I, my, my other favorite moment was um, when the, the, the people on the base are looking out and they say, there's a woman. And this guy leaps up and goes, Oh woman. It's so great. And there's like these, these like, there's like these pin-up photos on the on the wall as well, and I just it's so striking because it's it's so very different to the Who that I sort of. Well, I mean, how old was I when New Who started? I must have been six years old. So um, that 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 was really my first engagement with with Doctor Who, I suppose. Um, seeing sort of parts of the 10th planet in the um, Adventure in Space and Time, which mm, is yes. a wonderful film, which begins with a shot of um, one of the early Cybermen sort of having a cigarette break, which is a hilarious image. It completely shatters all of the illusions around Doctor Who. And I remember being very quite distressed by it. It's like, because I used to love Doctor Who Confidential. I'm sure everyone loves mm. Doctor Who Confidential. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, and, that's a, that's a core cool memory. <laughs> RIP um, on BBC Three, which was the sort of behind the scenes for people who don't know um, uh, of Doctor Who and how they made it, and was sort of. I think it was probably one of the first times when I was really engaging with that kind of behind the scenes material, um, and I would then start when DVDs began, and I start watching all of the behind the scenes stuff, and that's how I sort of became interested in the craft of filmmaking rather than simply watching films um when did the adventure in space and time 2013 i think it was was just as late as that okay yeah it's the the 50th anniversary it was just a few days before the 50th anniversary special so i've i this could be wrong 21st of november 2013 that sounds about right considering what i've seen Mm. but it's it's such a gorgeous um depiction of that era and i remember uh, jessica rain gorgeous jessica rain playing uh Ver- verity lambert which was uh quite striking um and her sort of the this the, the her as the center of the story and i remember being like oh my god okay it 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 is fine to be a woman like doctor who because it's not often the case and i think this is perhaps why my fandom has sort of diminished is because often when you go into a room that is nominally filled with Doctor Who fans, you can often find that you are the only woman in the room. Um, and that is... There's something off-putting to that, is, is what I'm trying to say. I don't think I knew many other... I didn't know many other um, girls who were also interested in Doctor Who until I got a little bit older and then I started meeting other crazy nerd people at uh, comic conventions and so forth. My own my own relationship with Doctor Who is that um, I my dad was a fan, so I uh, when I was young, we used to watch quite a lot of reruns on TV, and we had quite a lot of videos in the house of of classic Who. Um, I never was I never sort of seen all all of it, but we certainly watched a lot of uh, Pertwee and and Tom Baker reruns when they came on, and I just found it fascinating and wonderful. And I had uh, various. Uh, various one uh, uh, serials on on video, and I also had the. I, I always really loved the um, Daleks Invasion Earth um, feature length film uh, with um, Peter Cushing, uh, with the really colourful Daleks and so on. I had that on video and watched that quite a lot. Um, oh, that is so a good film. 
Yeah, it's good, isn't it? It's really good. It really stands up, and yeah, it, it recently really released it. on 4K. I oh, really? As, a, re- as a remaster, I'm yeah. pretty sure with the with both films. Yeah, and features another great version of Susan played by Roberta Tovey. Yes, who's very very good in the who's very very good in the first film. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was great, and it, it was really nice. I I think this was the first time I'd watched the Tenth Planet. Um, uh, so it was lovely to to be able to do that and 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 go through it. It was really great. I really enjoyed it, and it was really interesting to see you know that era of who playing through and and yeah, as you say, sort of like be be able to sort of think about. I like what you said, Harry, about kind of connecting it with how 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 who is written in the modern era and 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 when it was um, rebooted by by Russell T Davis and the, and the, the interesting connections that you make there with kind of some of the sort of plot structures and the kind of ideas and that the planet in the sky is a very something that seems to be continually re- returned to which is really interesting I of course we were looking at this and, and Ethan did prompt us to look at this in terms of the Cybermen and we are sort of focusing sort of focusing in on the Cybermen so it was interesting to see how the Cybermen started and what that first kind of narrative was around them um, and to think of it in terms of, of, of autism. So it really get, got me thinking about things like uh, you know, anxieties around technology and developments of technology and cyborgs and so on, but also how um, autistic and neurodivergent behaviours and ways of speaking and ways of moving and ways of um, socialising, I suppose, are and perhaps can be seen as an influence or, or can be seen as a kind of um, uh, uh, cr- helping to create these these figures in a way. And it's interesting to try and map that connection between how you co- you go from having autistic people in, in, in day-to-day life that people know but maybe perhaps don't really know much about autism, especially that back in the 60s, and trace how that then turns into various figures in culture. And, and, and maybe the Cybermen is... It, Cybermen is an interesting uh, case study in that respect. What was really interesting about the Tenth Planet for me was that the Cybermen. Um, uh, what I thought, thought was interesting was that they. It's quite notable that they're not necessarily here. They don't necessarily turn up in this kind of pure destructive mode, but they're actually in survival mode. And and the whole story of the thing is that the 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 Tenth Planet is this kind of twin of Earth, which is this upside down Earth, effectively that's gone missing has gone off to the edges of the solar system and now and now is making made its way back and the people who were on that earth couldn't struggle with the freezing temperatures of being out in the solar system and so had to invent technologies to help them and that's how they ended up being these cyborg figures and then just kind of fully become the cybermen and they're coming back to earth in order to drain the earth of power so that they can save their own planet of mondas so there was an interesting element of actually they're not here necessarily as this kind of marauding uh you know invading species but they're actually doing this for the survival of their own planet um uh and uh, and they yeah are very coldly dismissing earth and the humans and saying you know we don't care about you guys we just want we just need your resource effectively but i thought it was an interesting way around because a lot of the modern cybermen well the cybermen trajectory really has been much more towards this kind of they come here to assimilate us and to um to invade and to destroy um whereas initially they they're not really doing that they're they're sort of thinking about the survival of their own species which i thought was really interesting that's why, in many respects, I chose this depiction of the Cybermen as our uh, jumping-off point, because, firstly, it's their very first appearance, but also, it, as, as you rightly pointed out, it does 
differ from it, it differs from what a, the Cybermen eventually become by something like Silver Nemesis, where they are a lot more just sort of ruthless uh, marauders, effectively bandits, if you will, um, in in silver outfits. Um, and actually, I, so I'm going to be, I must confess, I am going to be taking a lot of my lead from the very excellent website, um, A Brief History of Time Travel, uh, which is, uh, which is uh, if you have not read, I highly recommend. So uh, apparently, um, the original Simon idea, which was created by the uh, Dr. Kit Peddler, who was also uh, responsible for Doomwatch, uh, which is another cautionary science fiction. Yes, uh, which he did with Jerry Davis, who was the story editor on Doctor Who at this time. So they go on and collab. So uh, the thing it says, in the scripts, the Cybermen had hum- human faces, although each was similar to the others, uh, with a metal plate under their hair. Their hands were also human, although their arms were transparent, made of lods, uh, rods and light. And then, obviously, uh, the design was modified into what we see in the original uh, serial, which is that very specific um, face. But I'd like to stress the note, I'd like to stress here that the conception of the Cybermen is never the... Um, blank metal-faced, uh, almost automaton that we see from, I would say, probably from the moon base onwards, uh, gradually getting to the point where they have no mouths in something like uh, Attack of the Cybermen or Silver Nemesis. They are meant to be representative of human... Uh, they are meant to be humanoid, and at the very least quite distinctly human, even if their cloth masks suggest otherwise. You can, in fact, see the actor's eyes in the eye sockets. Which is really cool. Hmm. And creepy as well, quite uncanny. It's very, very unsettling, especially for someone like me who had grown up watching clips of the Tenth Planet, and then because the quality was so poor, one could not see the eyes, and so it was just simply black holes in in the in in the in the masks. So rewatch, so watching it as it was today was very uh, well. Yesterday was very unsettling. It's great because uh, people um, once it's noticed, it's a very clever thing of how people could be inclined to go, oh, that's. That's 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 a bit of a goof that you could see the actor's eyes, but actually, of course, it plays rather wonderfully into the 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 idea that they are human beings. So it's actually one of those where, a, a, like a production limitation, actually, in a very sort of odd way, is reverse engineered into something that's really endearing about these kind of very early Cybermen. And it's it's interesting that um, you you David and uh, brought up the fact that that they they're they're kind of more because i've got this in my notes they seem to have a more profane attitude to human bodies in the 10th planet where it's more a case of they they come along and say our planet is dying uh we need your energy but you're you're very we will let you come and you know coexist with us it's just that you'll need to become like us because they have an automatic assumption that that's what human beings need it's not really into uh, because the, I, I love Ethan's description of they, they're bandits and silver outfits. That that's that should be a, a title for one of the stories at some point. Um, that it's it's as they they're sort of more of like uh, a sort of a, a galaxy trotting empire in the eighties. It's not really until New Who that you get this sense that they actually regard humanity as sacred, and what they they're doing they're here to 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 save us. That becomes more of a a staple of modern Cybermen. Which kind of reflects, I suppose, the fact that you know now there's there's a there's a demand for technologies to improve our experience compared to what the Cybermen represent here, which is of course spare part 
surgery and human transplants where um, it's more like, I, I was reading about this in um, a really interesting journal by um, uh, Helen MacDonald called Guarding the Public Interest, England's Coroners and Organ Transplants between 1960 and 1975. And it was how like the, the spare part surgery, the idea of transplants really put surgeons into conflict with like coroners uh you know in, from birmingham because these coroners were like we need the bodies to be intact in order to identify the cause of death and some surgeons were taking umbrage with this because they were like we need the we need the material now and i i don't know about dr kit peddler or joe davis's allegiances i'm sure it's more to do with peddler i'm sure joe davis was just wanting a cracking story but i sort of wonder if peddler was kind of interestingly on given that he comes from the medical side kind of applying a sort of cor- a coroner's a viewpoint to the simon and that their horror is they just regard us as raw material and uh, that's something that admittedly even by uh, at the moon base uh, there's there's a bit where they they're altering human beings' brains to control them which is great and they have this great vein effect where a neurotropic virus is coursing through the veins and turning them black but then they're like, in their sort of electro-larynx voice, they're like, we will use this weather station to destroy the Earth. And you're like, oh, no, you're not meant to destroy the Earth. You're meant to turn humans into Cybermen. So it kind of feels like that already gets lost as early as their second story. But the 10th planet is, you know, is quite good. It's just a shame we don't get to, do you know what would just make it, maybe pep up episode three, if we could just actually see that in action. Not Not fully, but just if, you know, if one... One of the crew, like, you know, Dyson had been taken and turned into a Simon. It would just lift it that little bit more. Yeah, I think you're right, actually. That would be really interesting. They put a balaclava on his head and suddenly is a Simon at that point. Yeah, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, that, that, that was missing a little bit. And it's a great design by um, um, Alexandra Tynan. Uh, this kind of, she's credited as Sandra Reed in the credits for this story. Uh, and considering, you know, that it was like a very limited budget, the idea of doing this Simon is more like, uh, as Stephen Moffat described them when they were brought back into New Who in the Peter Capaldi story, World Enough and Time and the Doctor Falls, they're like Burns victims. And so you can imagine that the balaclavas are actually bandages that are dressing wounds from operations. Uh, and, you know, it's it's a design that works really well, particularly in black and white. I think, I think Cybermen are... The Daleks, like the films we were mentioning, when you see the Daleks explode into Technicolor on the screen... You're like, oh, yeah, this is where Daleks belong. They're meant to be resplendent in lavish uh, uh, colours and, you know, to get to see their liveries. Cybermen are kind of, they're they're a little bit universal monsters. Uh, So they kind of seem to suit black and white really well. And they seem to be a little bit pre-code Hollywood. That You could make a case they're Doctor Who's first horror monster, really. So there's just something about black and white, whereas once they get into colour, even though the silver is very shiny and, you know, they gleam, you do sort of think, oh, maybe something a little bit has been lost about them. Yeah, I really love that that sort of monochromatic aspect of them. Uh, I think it really, they really look gorgeous. And I, I think what's so striking about these Cybermen, not just in how they look, but also in how they sound. Um, and I wanted to talk a bit about about the, the sort of sp- cyber speak, I suppose. Um, one of the things that I was thinking about earlier when I was sort of trying to remember when I first sort of came into contact with 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 sort of this very early um period of Doctor Who is that I think I used to struggle with it as a child in that 
it was it wasn't as, it wasn't as engaging as Chris Freckleston was. So um, why 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 would why would I watch this sort of grumpy old man with uh, going around and not doing much? Um, how times change. Um, but I I I, su- I suppose that one of the things also is that the the styles of speech are there isn't there's an uncanniness to them because they don't sound real. Um, and that's not just the Cybermen. That's everyone um, except for William Hartnell. Um, who's a wonderful actor, and El Cameron, who's in it, which is wonderful to see. Yes, the, yeah. the great El Cameron is in we, this serum. Which um, should be mentioned. Which should be mentioned. He is one of the few black actors who has appeared in yeah. Doctor, and he definitely, I think, has the largest role in it. But one I did interrupt. Few black actors to be in British cinema in this period. This, yes, this is very uh, true. Uh, this uh, is uh, very, uh, very true. Um, but um, yeah, so he's and apart from him and sort of Bill Hartnell, everyone else is kind of. Not very good. I mean, bless, bless, bless Annika Wills and, and Michael Crows. I think my fa- my favorite Ben line is um, just imagine trying to tackle one of them geezers with a screwdriver. It's so <laughs> yes. good. It's so good. Spoken to nobody. Um, like he says that to himself, doesn't he? Yeah. So, in terms of both sort of these these voices and the 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 look, as we've talked about, that this is sort of the most humanoid side man because the cloth sort of allows you to see these these human. Facial structure and what I said, said earlier about adventure space and time, when you see the Cyberman smoking, and it's like, okay, that's a that's a there's the, this this sense of uncanny in the Freudian sense, um, sort of coming from um, E.T.A. Hoffman, Sandman, and like the idea of there being this sort of um, doll-like figure, which is um, like a human but not like a human. And I think I've always found that really interesting in relation to autism about how people can often seem uncanny even real human people in that um you're trying to connect with them and engage with them but actually there's not much there to sort of respond to and the cybermen's kind of capture that essence for me um and there's something really it's unsettling i mean maybe in the later cybermen the first cybermen that i would have seen um would have been what uh rise of the cyberman age of steel so which, which in itself is about the, I mean, that's like that whole thing is about the uncanny of like these, these sort of parallel universe that sort of goes throughout that um, Rose Tyler David Tennant series and 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 those these kinds of ideas of like what is going on, um, and and one's life suddenly seeming out of joint and out of place and people not being who you know and there's a lot of play with memory in Doctor Who in general that time travel can mean that. What happens if you go and you see someone and they don't recognize you? And that idea is something that's always really upset me when watching Doctor Who. I mean, I've gotten very, very emotional watching Doctor Who at times um, for for these reasons, these ideas of like, what happens if someone sort of vanishes, vanishes from existence? And I think that's really the emotional core of of what the risk is when you when you travel with the doctor is that is that life could be shifted in these ways and the, and the cybermen kind of represent a, an encapsulated version of that within these 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 human like figures um so it's, it's it's really interesting to sort of talk about the history of the cybermen but i what i wanted to and 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 the tenth planet in general but i think what's so specific about it is 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 that we're getting these characters sort of being played with here and being introduced. Um, and they kind of change, even as the serial goes on over the four episodes, they become something different. We're playing with the ideas of what they can do um, 
it's it's quite hard to detach yourself from the knowledge that if they touch you, you're going to get electrocuted. <laughs> it's like, um, they don't know that. Um, so no one knows who these figures are. I mean, I was even thinking this about the regeneration sequence. It's like, what did people think that was? <laughs> there is no explanation as to what has happened. It just ends. And people must have been there like, what a great what? cliffhanger in a way. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, it's so good because it doesn't, Doctor Who at this point doesn't really explain everything. And I don't think Doctor Who ever really has done. It's been quite good at not sort of being overly expositionary. Perhaps there has been a lot in, in Chibnall, actually, you now I think of that. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Especially because there's more sort of historical episodes that's like, oh, look, that's Rosa Parks. She did this thing. And it's like, okay, we get it. But <laughs> it seems less the case. There's a lot less hand-holding, and I find that that's quite reflective of autistic experience for me, is that everything just sort of happens without context. And it's like, hmm, why did that person just, why did that person just wink at me? Or why did that person just like do a certain facial um, expression? And I think it's the same thing with watching these, these early episodes. Like, why did that just happen? I don't even think the writers knew why that happened. It's often the case. Sorry, Ethan, you're desperate. To- <laughs> no, no. Well, I want to. I think it's you know, your points were so fantastic. It's just that I, I suddenly had like three or four different answers. To no, please, please, please do because I am so, trying to. No, of course. Yeah. So one thing that I do want to mention is in relation to the uncanny and the voice is the Cyberman's note uh, thought of tonality. But who or what are you? We are called Cybermen. Cybermen? Yes, Cybermen. We were exactly like you once, but our cybernetic scientists realized that our race was getting weak. The Cybermen in this serial, more so than the others, have almost a sing-song tonality to them. This is a very early form of... Well, Doctor Who was obviously using very early forms of electronic... Uh, instrumentation, both in its theme music, which um, which was obviously uh, done by the wonderful Delia Derbyshire, uh, um, another very instrumental woman in the creation of Doctor Who, which is, I think, a subject that we can definitely uh, uh, we've brought An out already. Goddess, Absolutely. goddess Delia. Uh, the but um, what it does is it makes their voices incredibly. Uh, yeah, it's very sing song. It's very artificial. It's almost as if. Uh, uh, it's a pale imitation of um, tonality. And I think that's very important when thinking about autism in terms of the idea of almost a flat affect. The the Cybermen present like a flat affect forced into something more, what what they believe to be more coherent. Uh, And so it comes off as this very, very strange and quite uncanny depiction of human speech because it is doll-like. It's what you might think a broken doll would sound like. And it's especially evident in the fourth episode when, um, so the first, so for for brief reference, for those who've not seen The Tenth Planet, the first two episodes involve three Cybermen coming into the Snowcat base, announcing announcing what they're doing and taking over. After that, there is, uh, the Cybermen are overpowered and killed in perhaps the easiest way possible by using their own guns. Um... And then a cyber invasion fleet appears and a new batch of Cybermen appear. Uh, the voices are by Royce, uh, Roy Skelton, I believe, uh, as one of the vocal artists. But this other Cyberman has this incredibly strange tonality, which goes from here to here. And it sort of hops up and down in this very off-putting and really quite 
unsettling manner. And it is it is dull-like, and it's we've mentioned it them being the first horror monsters. And I think that's perhaps one of the reasons why, is because they, unlike the Daleks, who are very distinctly non-human, or very non-humanoid, uh, even though obviously as series later go on, we understand that they are uh, organic matter within a almost a a metal support system the cybermen clearly resemble clearly are humanoid operate with the same limbs as a human uh and so prevent sort of create this sort of unheimlich notion far more clearly the other thing i'd like to talk about um bringing on from lillian is that regeneration scene Uh, so this is for those who don't know at this point hartnell was extremely ill uh, they decided that they were no longer able to keep him on the show. So what they did was they simply decided to replace him with a new actor, which was Patrick Troughton, thus creating the regeneration. But as you said, I don't think even the writers knew what they were doing at that point. And one of the you also mentioned that Doctor Who, especially in its classic era, has never been very um, expositionary. And I, that's one of the things I like about Who is because it, 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 it came about in an organic manner. It was bits and pieces of um, law and trivia gradually uh, sort of agglomerating itself until you get to the early 80s when the sort of the entrenchment and the reconciliation of all the concepts becomes obvious uh, thanks to people like Levine and Soward. But I think that's a different, I think that's perhaps a more wide ranging uh, subject. It, but it, it, nevertheless, I think you're right. There is something very surreal watching the early Doctor Who's because they are on an entirely different plane to the the two thousands ones. They're much slower. They are shot in these long takes uh, with very little in the way of close ups. They're not shot like films. They're shot like teleplays, and that does feel very weird um, to an audience from today. You have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema Project from Queen Mary, University of London. Our thanks to 344 Audio for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. Many thanks for tuning in.